It's my last sermon, last sermon uh, being lead pastor here at Maple Grove Covenant Church, but also it's my last sermon um, in full-time pastoral ministry. My um, hope still to use my gifts in a part-time basis for churches that need pulpit supply or interim work, but uh, this draws an end. Uh, 25 years of full-time pastoral ministry from being a youth pastor to a college pastor to a church planter to a lead pastor. And um, my very first Bible study of the very first uh, small group that I was a part of some uh, 25 years ago was the book of Ephesians. And I've come full circle, and that's what we're closing with. So fasten your seatbelts. I get to preach as long as I want. And I timed my sermon. I was here early this morning, timing, and it came in about 62 minutes. So grab a pillow or coffee, whatever you need. Anyways, as Paul writes Ephesians, and just like, just like he writes in his other letters, like Colossians and Philippians and Galatians, he's concerned about the health of the churches. It's a very big deal for him. And we see that in a lot of ways. In fact, I would say that's his primary motivation when he writes uh, these letters. Not all 13 are about that, but most of them are. When he writes to the churches, is that he's really concerned about the health of the church. I mean, he's concerned about a lot of things, but the spiritual health makes a difference because a, if the church is not healthy on the inside, no matter what happens on the outside, it's not going to make it. And these churches that he, he planted, they're very fragile. They're small, and they're surrounded by a number of false religions, and the odds are against them. And as Paul writes these letters, he's, he's, he's wanting them to be healthy. Because when we look at the church, the church, yes, is a nonprofit organization, but also it's an organism. It's alive. In a sense, it has flesh and blood, a mind and heart. And as such, if it's not healthy, no matter what goes on, it's not going to be spiritually healthy. And just like us, if we're not healthy in the inside, if we have respiratory issues or high blood pressure, no matter if we change our look, our hair, we're not going to be healthy. And just like my general physician says, you know, there's some basics. There's some marks of being healthy as a person. It's, uh, you know, food and water, exercise, rest, number of things like that. In the same way, I believe there's marks of a healthy church. And I want to leave this with you, that for Maple Grove Covenant, that as you uh, possess some of these healthy marks, that you would continue to grow in them because they're so important. First and foremost, I want to say that the mark of a healthy church is Scripture. In your teaching notes, that's the first fill in the blank. The first and foremost mark of a healthy church is Scripture. Nothing can replace that. And uh, it's something that I, I've seen in this church. In fact, over 30-some years, four, four different lead pastors, one interim pastor. This is a church that has been centered on God's Word. And, the, the, and I don't think it's any accident that this church is healthy in that way. And I really see God's word as the, wa- the water and the food for the church body. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to jump around different spots of Ephesians since we've been in this series for uh, seven weeks. This is the eighth week. In Ephesians 6, as he talks about the spiritual armor. And by the way, if you're looking for a great study on the armor of God, Phil Schreier has a fantastic study. Um, but Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. He says this, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. I like to circle that phrase, the belt of truth. What he's talking about is God's word. That's what he means by truth, the scriptures. Now when it comes to uh, a Roman armor, that's what he's referring to. If the belt is not on there, the complete armor will fall off. They may have a sword and they may have a shield, but they're exposed. 
So that belt of truth is so important to keeping things together in the same way the belt of truth is so, so important to keeping a church together, to be what God wants for it. Scripture makes a difference. It's no accident that Paul mentions that, and in fact, in the armor of God. It's the, first, it's the first item mentioned in the armor because it's the most important. And it's no accident Martin Luther, when uh, he began the Reformation, that he penned the marks of a healthy church uh, in the Reformation. The first one he listed, sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase, means what? Scripture alone. And there's four other ones as well. He called them the five pillars of the church. But the first one is Sola Scriptura. And for Luther, it's very important. And it was very important for the church as well. And Luther uh, lived and breathed God's Word. In fact, um, in terms of uh, the Bible, that he translated the entire Bible in a colloquial, vernacular German language for, for his homeland. So they actually could have a Bible in their hands for the very first time. Because before that, what they, what they did is listen to the words of the priest and how they interpret it. But for the first time, especially with the advent of Gutenberg's, uh, Gutenberg's uh, printing press, we now had mass distribution of God's Word, and it made a huge difference. People had actually a Bible in their hands, and they treasured it. And they, as they read through it, let that wash over them. And in fact, when a uh, church is doing that, it's alive in so many ways. It's the water and the food for the church. And I love what Luther says about this. He was so immersed in God's word, he once said, the Bible's alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. What if you and I, in our lives, were to take such an approach? Because what we can do, yes, we can come to church on Sundays and listen to God's word being preached, and that's very important. But what if, in this congregation going forward, that individually, that we were to read a few verses during the day and allow God to speak to us. Nothing can replace that. Podcasts can't. Videocasts can't. Great Christian books can't. Nothing replaces God's Word. It's back to the basics. That's what it is. Just like having a healthy life. It's back to the basics. It's food and water. It's exercise. It's the same way with God's Word. Nothing can replace it. Because in the church today, especially in the Western world in America, especially that we can have all the bells and whistles. We can have a beautiful landscape. We can have catchy mission statements. We can have a great coffee bar. But they all fall short, except if the coffee's Starbucks. But they all fall short. They all fall short. They all fall short if it's not centered, if a community is not centered on God's Word. And my prayer for you going forward is that you would continue that on Sunday mornings, but also in your individual lives. Because what you bring to the church as, as you live in the scriptures makes a difference what happens here corporately. Second, like a hand in glove, scripture is with evangelism. Sometimes we overlook this. And I love what Paul talks about in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. And that truth would be the good news. And he says that, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. We've got to make sure that when we share the gospel with people, we need to include the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we talk about Jesus, and that's important. But the Holy Spirit's part of the gospel as well, the good news. And then in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, what is the core of the good news? God saved you by grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. That's exactly what the good news is about. It's about grace. It's about Jesus Christ giving his life on the cross so that you and I 
don't have to earn it because we can't earn it. And he gave his life once and for all so that you and I would have the removal of sins, past, present, and future, and that we actually can have a future in heaven with Christ. That's the good news. And the good news is the Holy Spirit, when we say yes to Christ, resides inside of us, guides us, prompts us. Now, what's interesting about the good news is that Paul and the early Christians, anytime you study Christianity, you also, um, the Roman Empire crosses over in so many ways. In a lot of ways they cross over is that the Christians would take um, Roman words and they would change them to what, uh, what was happening in the church. For, for, for example, the good news actually wasn't a term penned by Paul for the first time. It was a Roman term, evangelion. Evangelion meant the good news of Caesar. And because they didn't have newspapers and media, what Caesar would do, he would send out men and young boys on the corners of the public square uh, just sharing the propaganda of Caesar. That Caesar is God. That was called the imperial cult. And that you're to worship him. And you, a lot of you heard me uh, talk about that before. And not only to worship him, but also that the hope, the dreams that you have can only happen through Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. In other words, the empire of Rome. So whoever you are, whatever you do, your, your hope is found in the kingdom of Rome. And the Christians come along, and they take that word, and they say, nope. Nope. Caesar is not God. Jesus Christ is. And the good news is not Pax Romana. It's actually, the good news is the fact that you and I have been saved by grace, and that you and I have this opportunity to live with God. Isn't that good news? Yeah. That's good news. And that's love how subversive Paul and the others are. They take that word and they just ch- totally change that in terms of what it means for Christianity. The good news. It's not the good news of the world or culture. The good news is Jesus Christ. That doesn't change. And for you and I to be challenged by this, for you and I to go share the good news, are you prepared to do that? Maybe take a step individually where you start talking to a person and just begin telling your story. Or maybe just plant seeds. In fact, I planted seeds a number of years ago with a guy I played softball with. He was an amazing softball player. He was like 6'4", 220. Uh, the guy, I remember one, one year we played uh, slow pitch softball. Uh, we do double headers twice a week. He had 100 home runs in one year. His name was Tom. We called him T-Bone <laughs> for a reason. But anyways, Tom, uh, he and I were good friends. He wasn't a churchgoer. He wasn't really interested in Christ. In fact, he'd give me a hard time about being a pastor. And yet we played softball together, and we had a really good friendship. And then we kind of lost track of each other over the years. And once in a while, I'd get a, we'd phone call each other. But last night, and I would share Christ with him during those years as we worked at Cub Foods together as we played softball. And his typical response would be to ignore me or like change the subject or I'm not interested in that. I don't want to be a Jesus freak. I get a call last night, didn't, didn't recognize the number, left a voicemail. And he said, hey, hey Case, this is T-Bone. Uh, I'm walking out of Eagle Brook, uh, Eagle, Brook, Eagle Brook, Woodbury. Just went to a church service. I was like, wow. So we're going to have uh, coffee and I'm really interested in what God has done in his life. And he just so was like, Craig, I'm praying for you. And I'm like, T-Bone's praying? Wow, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and this wishing me the best and thinking of me this morning, it was just powerful. But, and we can do that individually. And, but also we need to do that uh, corporately too, where you invite people to perhaps a Valentine's Carnival like a couple weeks ago, many of you did that, 
or maybe it's trunk or treat in the fall, but especially the holidays, Easter and Christmas. I can't tell me how many times in my classes where I've, I've read stories, testimonies of students that uh, stepped away from the church, and that, but they would come back on uh, Christmas and Easter. We call them Christers. And uh, they, would, they would come, and, and something would be planted in their lives. All of a sudden, there'd be a change. And it didn't happen every time, but over the course of time, it did. And uh, it reminds me of uh, Troy and Karen Luck. They're members here. And uh, Troy and Karen, when it comes to Christmas time, they, they like to have Christmas just with their family, just with their kids and grandkids, and just to be together because it's so precious, the time that they have. Uh, but Karen felt this prompting to reach out to a family member to join them for their Christmas Eve dinner. Um, and that family member said yes. And then Karen said, uh, but you got to come to Christmas Eve service with me. And this person hadn't been in a church in years and far away from God. And I, I just like how Karen kind of twisted that a little bit, a little, little you know, subversive way of doing it. And yet her family member came, came to church on Christmas this past year in 2019. And I spoke on LIGHT, L-I-G-H-T, I had an acronym about that. And Karen said it was like that sermon was written for her because after you would hit your main point, she would say yes, yes, yes. And at the end, when I gave the invitation to pray this prayer, and if you agreed with that prayer, because again, it's not the words, it's the heart. If you agree with it, say me too. And then Karen heard her whisper, me too. Wow. Now just imagine for a moment if Karen had not obeyed that prompting by God. Like, no, we're sticking to our traditions. We're going to stick to our family thing. That family member's destiny would still be a one-way ticket to hell. And now it's changed. So an invitation, you can do that anytime to invite somebody, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. And evangelism is so important. And for the church to be healthy, this is a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. Facts and trends reports that in America, 100 to 200 churches will close their, door, their doors this week. That's sobering. Ought to be sobering. 100 to 200 churches will close their doors this week, next week, the week after. And I think one of the reasons why that's happening, is, I think a few reasons, is the lack of evangelism. Uh, the churches become this holy club and they just kind of stick together. They're not going out and, and sharing the gospel. And I love the fact that this church does that. So many of you are doing that. You're praying for friends. Keep doing it. Because we're also seeing, too, in contrast, in Africa, um, that's being shared. It's probably one of the most uh, historical phenomenons, phenomenons in religious history. In Africa, we've seen in 1900, they began with 10 million Christians in Africa. In 2000, 350 million. And in facts and trends, uh, predicts, and also some other places, they predict that in 2025, there's going to be 630 to 700 million Christians in Africa. It's shifting. And as we know, other countries are sending, uh, sending missionaries here because of the decline in Christianity. But chief among that, the reasons for that kind of explosive growth is evangelism. And the joy that these African churches have. I've been in services. They dance, they celebrate, and they just enjoy this life abundant they have with God, even though they're not quite sure if they're going to have food tomorrow or water tomorrow. And they just pour it out, and they love Jesus. And they share that with others. It's so infectious. What if that were to happen here in America? What if it happened here at Maple Grove Covenant continually? The next topic, or the next mark, excuse me, of a healthy church is unity. That's a big one. 
perhaps the most prominent uh, theme that Paul writes in his letters, unity. He writes in chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles. Stop right there. So they, right there you have two polarized groups. And you can insert any uh, two polarized groups that we have in our society today. And we have a lot, don't we, in American society. Yes, we have conservatives and liberals. It's very polarizing. We have people in church that are legalists and others that are more free grace oriented. And then we have those who watch The Bachelor and those who don't. <laughs> Kidding. But into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law and its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. In other words, a new humanity. Christ came to do a number of things, but one of them was to create a new humanity. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death, so on and so forth. I want to emphasize something here, is the unity. He says he united Jews and Gentiles by creating a new people from the two groups. I'd like you to underline that phrase, a new people from the two groups, together as one body. And yet our natural inclination is not to be united. I think oftentimes, if we're to be honest, our desire, either conscious or subconscious, is to be homogenous. We want to be with people that are like us. And what can happen in these little homogenous groups is gossip, where we talk about others who violate our values, or perhaps they do something that we deem right or wrong, and and we begin to talk about it. And when there isn't that unity where we love one another, when we actually talk to each other about before we talk about them, um, it's destructive. Paul writes this in chapter 4, verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Oftentimes, I don't think gossip is encouraging. It destroys. It destroys. And then Paul gets even more direct in Galatians. I preached on this a number of months ago. Right before the fruits of the Spirit... I call this the rotten fruit of the flesh. He says this, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful desire, pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, and division. Which, by the way, that's what gossip causes right there. That's what he means. Envy, drunkenness, and wild parties. By the way, wild parties, i.e. orgies. He's putting all these on the same level. There is no hierarchy of sin. So when we gossip, and when we do that, there's a technical biblical word for that. It's sin. It's sin. Gossip steals, kills, and destroys. It's the coronavirus of the church. And I don't think, I don't think the threat to Maple Grove Covenant or any church right now is on the outside. I don't think it's, it's the, uh, the, the change of a liberal culture or the media or perhaps uh, other religions like Islam or Hinduism, I believe the threat is inside because gossip kills. And I think another reason why we're seeing American churches closing um, every week is because of gossip. It's a deadly virus. It's a deadly virus. In fact, when I get together with pastors, we have a, a ministerium of Maple Grove pastors, this conversation that we talk about. And gossip's everywhere. And it's just a matter of the level of it. How, how far has this virus reached into our churches? 
And we talk about things that we need to do in our churches to make sure that it doesn't grow. And yet at the same time, it's something I've endured in my entire pastoral ministry career. In fact, I think I've been accused of everything short of the, the Kennedy assassination. I'm serious. And Maple Grove Covenant has not been immune to it. And there's been a few people who have passed their own lies and misinformation, half-truths about me. And I just wish people would come and just come to me straight and just say, here's the thing that I see. Just talk to the pastor. Talk to the person. In fact, I have a saying, instead of, we, instead of talking about that someone, talk to that someone. And, to, and to cut it off. It needs to change. And that starts individually. When somebody starts talking to you about something I heard, you've got to stop it. And say, you know what? You need to talk to that person. And unity also um, means not only stomping out or stopping uh, the virus of gossip, but also affirming that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not the lead pastor. It's very easy for us, especially in this era of celebrity pastors. We're like, they're the one. No, Jesus Christ is the one. He is the head of the body. Paul says in uh, chapter 5, verse 23, I shared this last week. That for a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. This is vital. Because once you, have, when you, once you put the senior pastor like, as the head, and you don't re- remember that Christ is the head, pretty soon the senior pastor is put on a pedestal. A pedestal he, he or she can't live up to. And also their family is put onto a pedestal as well. And where, where they are watched like they are holier than thou. A friend of mine, good friend of mine, uh, who's been a pastor for 30 years, effective ministry, his 16-year-old daughter uh, one time uh, dyed her hair purple. And in that church, there were about two or three people that walked up to her and told her just how offensive that was and sent an email to that pastor. And that pastor um, is not exactly uh, soft. He's a lion. And he told him, don't ever, ever, criticize my daughter in that way again. If you have a problem, you talk to me. And I think that's what happened. We, we put them on pedestals. But clergy and pastors, are hum- we're human like you. We're broken. And I can't tell me, I, I've shared this before, how many times I have coffee with a random stranger on a golf course, and you know, they ask me what I do for a living, and I say, a, a pastor, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I've been swearing the last five holes. And then they ask me, you know, what, what, you, what do you really do as a pastor? You know, I've had those conversations on the golf course. And I said, well, I just pray. So if you'd stop sinning, I won't have to work so much. <laughs> I, I don't do that. Give me Gideon Bible or something. Anyways, this, this, I think this came out in um, just a living color when I saw this. When the Pope was walking down the line shaking hands. And I think he showed his human side. And yet, internationally, there was like, (gasps) the Pope did this? Let's show the video. (laughs) Yeah, look at his face. He's not happy. He's not happy. Now, the Catholics don't believe he's human, but he is. And he makes mistakes. And he apologized the next day for slapping her around the arm. Um, but we're human. And oftentimes we put people, clergy, pastors, on this level. And not only that, also their spouses and their kids. And that's dangerous. I cannot tell you the number of stories of the casualties of kids of, of uh, uh, pastors. 
PKs, we call them, which is an awful term. They should be called by their names, right? And um, yesterday I was at OPH uh, with my kids over in Roseville. It was probably one of the most in-depth conversations that I had with my kids. We just had an amazing time talking about Allie's wedding coming up on May 1st and, and, and uh, just this depth of conversation. And I, they told me stories that I didn't know about as they were growing up that at school or wherever church I was at, they would have other kids say to them, you know, you're, you're perfect. Uh, your dad's a pastor. And they would put my kids on this pedestal. And we've heard stories about kids of pastors and what has happened to them. I am so fortunate that my kids just kind of blew that off. They love Jesus. They got great characters. They attend church. But they're among the few. And I am so happy of who they are. And um, I just thank God every day the kind of character and integrity they have and the fact that they still love Jesus despite some of the stuff they've been through. Avoid putting pastors on pedestals. All right, let's close with this. The fourth mark, and there's a lot of marks we could talk about, is serving. Look, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And what we see here in Ephesians, I preached on this, is that it begins with the fact that you and I are dead in our transgressions. We're like the walking dead. And then yet it, it switches, it changes um, when it says, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ Jesus. And not only that, he seated us in the heavenly realms. That's past tense. So when you say yes to Jesus, you have a chair, in a sense, waiting for you in heaven. It's got your name inscribed on there. It can't be taken away from you. But not only that, as it continues on, he talks about grace, as I shared before. And then he gets to, I think, sort of the apex of the passage. He says this, For we are God's masterpiece. Now Paul could have put a period right there and stopped there. We are God's masterpiece. But then if he did you and I would simply be like, sort of like a Michelangelo's uh, famous sculpt, uh, sculpture of David, or perhaps the Sistine Chapel, or one of the paintings of Rembrandt or Van Gogh, something simply to look at. And we're not simply meant to be looked at, because he continues on, created new in Christ Jesus to do what? Good things. In other words, good works. And the Hebrew, what that means, good works, is mitzvah. There was a church in Cal, or a synagogue in California um, that had this big placard outside on their sign, as a lot of churches do. And the singular uh, uh, version of, of mitzvah is mitzvot. And what they put on there is changing the world one mitzvot, one good work at a time. It was so cool. And you and I, the mark of a healthy church is where you and I, yeah, we, you know, we're a masterpiece in, in, in God, but it's meant for something. It's meant for good works. We're not trying to earn our way to heaven by doing this or that. It's actually a response to the gift of grace. And that those good works can be small, ordinary things. Small, ordinary things. And a lot of you are doing that. And I just encourage you to look for opportunities. Opportunities just to do a small thing. And maybe, it, oftentimes, I, th- I think it's an interruption in our schedule. A lot of times, those are divine interruptions. Changing the world one mitzvot at a time. I remember reading a biography on Steve Jobs. I've read a few books on him, and he's just an incredible person. And what he shares about when he and Steve Wozniak started Apple in Wozniak's garage, uh, Jobs reflected, he said, you know, our, our, desire, our desire was not to make a lot of money, not to be famous, not to be renowned. But he said this, I wanted to make a dent in the world. And I think as followers of Christ, you and I should espouse that as well, to make a dent in the world, 
And I think the test of this is, it may be a little bit uh, dark to think this, but if you were to die tomorrow or next week, would people notice a difference? Would there be a gap in the spheres of influence that you have that Scott or Steve or Julie or Sarah, they're gone and that person was so kind and did so much and served in so many ways. I remember going to Brian, Gloria, Brian Berg's mom's funeral. I, I've never seen a funeral like that before. And so many people I talked to were just talking about it. What a difference she made. She made a dent in the world. And that's my desire for me as well. And also the litmus test for a church is this. That if Maple Grove Covenant, by chance, were to have to close their, their doors... And then soon a wrecking ball came by and knocked over uh, this church building and they wanted to build condos or perhaps another restaurant or something. Uh, The question is this. Litmus test for Maple Grove Covenant is this. Would anybody notice a difference? Would the people in the townhomes back here even notice? Would the people who live on Ranchview Lane notice a difference? The people who live on Fernbrook, would they notice there's a difference because Maple Grove Covenant does not exist anymore? Would the city of Maple Grove even know there's a gap? I think they would because this church is making a dent in the world. I want to close with this. And I've, done, I've used this before. It's a paraphrase of the famous speech by Bobby Kennedy when he went to um, apartheid South Africa, South Africa in 1966, just two years before his untimely death. He shared this speech called Ripples of Hope. And I paraphrase it for our own purposes. And I want you to think about this. Each time you step out in small and ordinary ways, each time you step out to improve the lives of others, perhaps in just a small measure, or volunteer to serve others, you send forth a tiny ripple of hope. And as each of us do that, collectively, those ripples come together to create a mighty current. A mighty current that will destroy the forces of evil and a mighty current that will crash the gates of hell. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being here with my friends and family, my church family. And God, thank you for your dreams and desires for Maple Grove Covenant Church. And I'm so excited to see what you're going to do in this next chapter. Because um, while we might be concerned, while we might be worried about what's going to happen, Jesus, you are the head of the church. And you will nourish this church body. You'll provide for her. And God, thank you for the honor. And thank you for the privilege for speaking up, uh, speaking in front of pulpits all these years. Um, I thank you so much. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, everybody said,